Uh, for those that are maybe joining us on live stream or, or down in the overflow that may have got here later, my name is Rob, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, entitled The New Exodus, and we're talking about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And just to kind of catch you up to where we've been, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were two leaders that lived in a period out, uh, between the, the exile and the return to the nation of Israel. So just quick history, uh, Israel, is, is uh, it still is, and they still are God's chosen people. And God called out a man by the name of Abraham, uh, whose name was Abram at the time, and him and his wife, uh, Sarah, uh, they would be the founding uh, father and mother of this nation that God said not only would he bless them, he would bless them so much so that they would not only bless the entire earth through their seed, but also that you wouldn't be able to number how many people are in this family because it was so large. And through Abram, we get the story of how Jesus Christ actually, uh, through genealogy, comes on the scene in order for him to, to, to be our savior. And so, so the God used this, this, this family in order to bring about Jesus Christ. And so for throughout history, this is God's chosen people so much so that he blessed them, he protected them, he took care of them. When they listened to God and they had enemies, God would fight for them and God would, would, would do miraculous things. And it was always true, no matter where they were, you would always be able to find the seed of Abraham somewhere, some, somebody down the line. And so they had uh, their, these 12 tribes, these 12 brothers, they, they, uh, through, through Isaac and Jacob, they came together and they formed this nation. And, uh, and as they were, were this big, big family, one of, one of the brothers was led down into Egypt because he was sold off by his brothers. And you may have seen the Prince of Egypt, you may know this story. And so one of the brothers was in Egypt and God set it up so when then there was this famine everywhere else, Joseph, the son that was sent off to Egypt, wound up being the prime minister of Egypt and made sure that not only did Egypt have enough food to survive the famine, that they were able to help other, other nations, other families who also needed food. And so when Joseph's family uh, needed food, they came to this guy who was the prime minister of, of Israel, uh, of Egypt, and they found out that it was, it was J, uh, uh, Joseph. They have this big family reunion, and then the Pharaoh tells Joseph, hey, tell your whole family they can move uh, to Egypt, and we'll give them like some of the best land. So they all move down to Egypt, and then that Pharaoh dies. Joseph dies, a bunch of people in, in the family die, and when the new Pharaoh came, he goes, yo, there are a lot of these Israelites. There's a lot of these people, and if they ever find out how many there are of them, they're going to take us over, so let's enslave them. And so Israel went through, through centuries of being enslaved. And then finally, a guy by the name of Moses came on the scene. You may have seen the movie Ten Commandments, right? And Moses winds up being the leader of, uh, of this nation and leads them out of Egypt. And they cross over to the Red Sea on dry land. And they go, and God says he's bringing them to this promised land. And they, he brings them into this wilderness and that they're about to enter the promised land called Canaan. And they send spies in to look at the land. And the spies came back with this report. Ten spies said the land was great, but there are giants there. There are people that we can never beat there. We can't take the land. And two spies were good. These, uh, this, and, and they said, no, God said it's our land. We're going to take this land. And so they listened to the 10 negative spies and God said, okay, I told you it was yours. You've seen me part water. You've walked across dry land, but it said, I, I've literally given you bread and I've given you quail every day that just like kind of falls from heaven. I fed you every day and you're not going to listen. So, all right, 40 years in the wilderness, you're just going to walk in this big circle for 40 years. And everybody in this generation that didn't think that I could do it, you're going to die and not enter the promised land. 
So by the time the 40 years comes up, Moses is dead. Everyone of that, uh, of that age is dead except for Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies that said they can go into the land. And so Moses' uh, lieutenant was Joshua. Joshua takes over and leads them into the promised land. And they spend years fighting and getting the promised land. Whatever they, whenever they trust God, God would make their battle against the nation easy. Whenever they wouldn't trust God, he would make it hard. And so they've seen miracle. They've seen judgment. They've seen this throughout their entire history. Then God finally raises up a king for them. First, before God raises up a king, God was directly their king, and the nation goes, you know what? We want to have a king like every other nation. Not that they wanted somebody to lead them closely. They wanted to be like everybody else. And so God said, okay, pick your own king. And they picked this guy by the name of Saul because he was taller than everybody else. He was cuter than everybody else, but this guy was a train wreck. I mean, he had, he had mental illness up the wazoo. I mean, he was happy one moment. He was upset the next moment. And one time he got so upset, they were like, yo, okay, so none of this stuff is working. We got to bring in somebody who can play some music. Maybe music will soothe them. So they find this young shepherd boy by the name of David. And David plays this harp. And a little bit of backstory about David. David's the youngest in his family, but David has like a taking out lions, taking out bears, taking out everybody to take care of his sheep. And his brothers don't think he's much, but David not only can fight, David can play the harp. And so David comes in and plays the harp and makes Saul feel better. So Saul now knows who David is. And then all of a sudden, David goes and, uh, and f- finds his brothers fighting against Philistines. And the Philistines have this big guy by the name of Goliath. You've seen Veggie Tales, right? And so like this big a giant comes up and he's like, you know what? You, you Israels are nothing. You're puny. We're going to kill you. And David comes on the scene. He's like, how come you guys haven't taken this guy out yet? And they're like, have you seen him? He's like nine foot tall. Yeah, but he just talked bad about God. Who cares? What are you guys doing? And so he goes by himself to Saul and said, hey, Saul, remember I'm the guy, that guy, right? So remember, and he goes, oh, yeah, Dave, how you doing? He goes, hey, you know, um, I don't have any armor, but like I really, we got to kill this guy. And Saul's like, well, you can use some of my armor. And so he goes and looks at Saul. And Saul had this nice decorative armor, really big. And David's just his kid. He's like, I can't use this. But I got some stones. I got this, this, uh, this sling. And we're going to take care of this guy. And they all go, hey, it's your funeral, right? And the brothers are watching what's going to happen. All of a sudden, David takes him out, cuts off the giant's head. And then now David is this rock star. So much so that he's invited into Saul's house and also marries a a girl of of royal lineage. And so David is just just this really important guy. But remember, Saul, Saul got some issues. And Saul hasn't had these issues taken care of by the Spirit of God. He leads very carnally, right? And so because he leads this way, he gets really ticked off at David. And David's a good friend with Saul's son, Jonathan. And he don't like that relationship either. So then Saul winds up trying to kill David. And it didn't help that whenever a battle happened, because David was now in the military, because when you kill a giant, they let you join the military, right? And so, so all of a sudden, David, this is the song that the crowds would sing. Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul's like, yeah, I have. David has slain his 10,000. Wait, what? And so all the songs were about David and David doing all this. And so Saul's like, David, David, David. Sounds like Julia, David, and Robert, Robert and Lauren, they're talking about David in our household, right? David, David, David. And so he, he literally, it's not just he's mad at him. Saul doesn't just get mad. Saul kills people when he gets mad, right? And so David has to run and leave and flee and literally go into the land of the Philistines and all these other places just to survive. And then all of a sudden, the war, the war is getting bad. Nations are coming after Israel. And, and David, you know, he knows he's the chosen one. God told him he was the chosen one. Samuel, the prophet, tells him he's the chosen one. He was a little kid. He finds this out. And all of a sudden, 
things start stirring up in David and he starts getting some boys behind him and he starts bringing this army together. And all of a sudden, when it's all said and done, David defeats Saul and he becomes the king. Here's the problem, though. From this point forward, even though they had the king that God wanted them to have and they got rid of Saul, there still wasn't this united sense of a kingdom. There were just these tribes that kind of acted like they were together, but all these family clans and stuff. And so David, through God's power, unites an entire nation. And we have the united kingdom of Israel. And this nation was balling. I mean, everything they had was just like, I mean, every, you've heard of Israel. You've heard of David. David was a, was a big deal. But the thing was, David was the king when things were getting built. David was the king when they were having war with other nations. So by the time David is about to die, he says, I have too much blood on my hands. I can't complete the most important part of this nation and building the temple where God's going to hang out with us. Because God from this point forward has been hanging out with them in, in this tabernacle. The spirit, the literal presence of God came down on this, on, this, on this beautiful piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And you could literally see the presence of God and you would, you would bring your sacrifices and you, would, and you would know that God was close. And all of a sudden, like, we have to have a permanent place for God. And everything was set up. But, you know, David did all this fighting. A little thing about David, though. David's a rock star. But David's not perfect. David was, in some sense, a ladies' man. And David had a wife. David had a couple of wives, right? And, then, and that wasn't enough for him. So David had this really great guy who was a great fighter by the name of Uriah the Hittite. I mean, I mean it's, it's the guy you don't want to meet in an alley, all right? That, that guy, right? And so he's out to war. And David's supposed to be out with them to war. And David decides to stay home. And so all of a sudden, because he's home, and the Bible even puts this way, when everybody's supposed to be out to battle, especially kings, David's at home. And David goes to the rooftop, and he sees Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, and he looks at her, and he goes, man, she's, she's cute. And he tells his guys, bring her to me. And you know what for, right? Now, I don't know what Bathsheba's part in this was, but like when the king says to come, she may have been scared for her life. We don't know. All we know is that, that they had sexual relations, and she was pregnant, so here's what Dave does. Instead of coming clean, instead of saying, hey, I did wrong, he sends his boy Uriah to the front of the line and says, hey, here's what we're going to do. He tells his generals, here's what I need you to do. You're going to put Uriah in the front. Yeah, Uriah's always in the front. He's the first one there. By the way, Dave, why are you home? Shut up. That's not what I mean. Okay, put Uriah in the front, right? And then all of a sudden, when they're going to fight, just have everybody step back except Uriah. And the general goes, are you kidding me? He goes, do it. And so he does it. And as soon as the battle starts going, everybody just steps back and Uriah gets killed. Nice guy, David, right? So David now has this guy out of the way and he thinks, good, I can marry Bathsheba. Everything's going to be fine. Nobody's going to know. But God has always had people in the wings who proclaim the word. Prophets, sometimes slaves, sometimes animals. And they would come and they would say things. And so Nathan the prophet comes to David and he goes, hey, I got a story to tell you. This is really messed up what this guy did. This guy goes and not only he has enough land for everybody, but he takes this little guy's little farmer, little subsistence farmer, just trying to make it. He goes and he takes his leg. He kills him. He kills him. The, the farmer, he takes his wife and takes his land. And David goes, where is this guy at? We're going to take them out. We don't do this. This is Israel, baby. Israel's where we have law and justice and all that stuff. And then Nathan goes, you're that dude. And it hit him. He took, he took, he took Bathsheba. He killed Uriah. He took what was his. 
And then David repents. David was, remember, he's a harp player. He's also a musician. He wrote a lot of the book of Psalms. And he writes Psalm 53 because of this. And he talks about how for, you know, have uh, received, please give me mercy, God, according to thy loving kindness, according to thy tender mercy, blot out my transgressions. And he says all these things. And he's really honest with God about who he is. And I'm not sure if this is one of the first times that David has been this honest about his bad times, you know. And so he writes this. And in the same time, he's waiting to see whether this baby is going to make it or not. And God takes the baby. The baby doesn't make it. And the entire time while he's waiting to see whether Bathsheba's baby is going to make it, he's in sackcloth, he's in ashes, he's mourning, he's, he's repenting to God. And when, and, when, and when the baby doesn't make it, David gets up and he goes, okay, I have my answer. This is what, God, you know, uh, a naked, I came into the world, I'm going to leave it the same way. I, I will see, and this is why we believe in the sanctity of life. One of, by the Spirit of God, David goes, I will go see that baby one day. Which means life does begin at conception, and God cares about life even before we know about it. So, they have another kid, his name is Solomon. Solomon's going to be the next king, the king of Israel. Solomon, when he comes on the scene, is really, really smart. He's really, really wise. So much so, even secular uh, historians from back in the day, they say that Solomon was this smart. And the nation got even bigger. Everybody was coming to Israel to see all of their, their, their fleet of ships, their chariots, their gold, all these things. Solomon builds the temple, and Solomon's temple is huge, right? But Solomon had a couple of problems. First one, and it's, I don't know if it's just genetic or just sin passing through the line, he also was a ladies' man. And not only had wives, he had all these concubines, and a lot of it was to show how much success he had, but he had all of these different attachments and all of these ladies from other religions came in, and it really affected Solomon's wisdom and affected his relationship with God. But the other thing about Solomon was he tended to listen to the wrong people. Right? Probably the same people who told him to take a bunch of wives and concubines, right? Probably the same advisors. And, he, and they told him, hey, you know what? We just went through this big uh, building project, the temple and all these things. His older advisors are like, hey, let's give the people a break. Let's give them some time. Let's let them heal. And the younger advisors were like, no, they need to know right now that you are King Solomon. David's going to be nothing compared to you. You tax them right now and let them know. And when, as soon as he did that, Everything falls apart. His son Rehoboam would complete this task. Solomon was told by his advisors. Rehoboam followed it out. And when Rehoboam decided to, to, to tax the people, what happens? A divided kingdom. So you have Solomon, united kingdom, beautiful, takes bad advice, passes that bad advice off to his son. Rehoboam does what? Listens. And Rehoboam is nothing like Solomon. He's not as smart as Solomon. He's not like David. And he just gets mad, does it, and this nation splits. So now you have two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has 10 tribes. The southern kingdom has two tribes. And then all of a sudden, the northern kingdom, every king was bad in the northern kingdom. So much so that we found out when we started this series, what happens? They all get exiled and sent out of the promised land. The southern nation lasted a little bit longer, but the exact same thing happened to them, and they're out of the promised land. And so this nation, God's chosen people, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, are coming back from being decades away. It was about 70 years that they were not in the promised land, right? Now, who here, and this is not you telling on yourself or like me getting upset when you're not here for the summer, but who here has a camper? Raise your hand, right? Okay, man, a lot of you have campers, right? Okay, who here sets up their camper for the summer at, at one spot? Okay, here's the thing. 
how many weeks do you guys go? Like, Mark, how many weeks, like, would you be away from your camper at one time, maybe? Like, the longest you'd ever be away from it? After it's set up? A couple weeks, maybe? The most, right? Okay. Imagine leaving your camper for 70 years, right? I mean, just the amount of film on the sink alone, right, would be, you know, but this, imagine like the entire promised land is, is like this. They haven't been there. There's been people who've been living there, but the nation of Israel as a whole has not been there. And so they know about the walls being torn down, the gates being, remember this beautiful city that Solomon made. The, the, the city for, for the most part stayed okay. The nation was okay physically, even through all these good kings and bad kings. But when it was all said and done, everything was demolished. And so the people in captivity, when they ask about how are things at home, the younger kids didn't even know. The older ones were like, hey, how is it? And they're like, it's bad. It's really bad. And so God moves the heart of Ezra and Nehemiah through different times, Ezra being more of the spiritual leader, Nehemiah being more of a governmental leader, to move and to get back into the promised land. God moves. He always does. Amen. God moves. And God leads, this up, leads pagan kings to allow them to go back. Now think about this for a second. One Pharaoh liked Joseph. The next Pharaoh didn't like Joseph, right? But through God's miraculous grace, one king of Persia to the next king still kept this promise alive. And so he gets them to move in to the promised land. And so now when they're there, there are things that are happening. Things get, start to get set up. They, 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 what we've read so far, they've built the wall. They built the gates. Things are getting back. And now they're getting to the place that they have to build the temple. The, mi the minor prophet of Haggai talks a little bit about this as well and how they were taking their time to build the temple and that God said, hey, it's time to stop building your houses. We got to build the house of God, right? Now, why, why is, and this is, this is a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about it. In the New Testament, right, the house of God is not a building. Who is it? Us, right? The local assembly and the universal, every believer, but we are the house of God. The church is the house of the Lord, right? But physically, we meet. This is not, this church building isn't solid rock. It's the home of solid rock, right? So, and it's important. This is where we worship, right? So I want you to think about this with the temple for a second. They, they had the opportunity, and a lot of the guys that were in captivity, like Daniel and, and Ezra and Nehemiah and all these guys, they worshiped God even in the midst of, of captivity, but they never were able to do it in the temple again, right? And so now think about this for a second. During COVID, Right? Oh, beautiful COVID, right? Where you guys had to shut down for a while and had to meet solely online, right? Where I came from, we met online way longer than you guys met online, right? And my parents who live in New York City, they only got back into going to Brooklyn about maybe six months ago, right? Um, you know how it felt to not be here and worship, right? And to kind of tune into something and it's like, yeah, we're all still trying to, everybody's trying to figure it out. And, you know, first week is like Randy on a webcam like this close and then it goes back and all of a sudden, like it got better, but it's still not the same thing, right? We learned a lot of stuff during COVID, but it's still not the same thing. Imagine for 70 years having that happen. Right? You're worshiping, you're doing what you can, but there's no congregation, there's no temple life, there's none of the stuff that we get, especially living in America, that we have the privilege to have this stuff, to get together, right? We have the right to assemble, we have freely, we can practice, not every country has that. And so imagine not being able to do that. So they start 
And this is where Ezra chapter 3 picks up. They start to put stuff together. So if you please stand with me and turn to Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. So let's put this together, right? They were in their own towns that come back to the city together. Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, and his brothers began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer what? Burnt offerings on it, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings from morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed and, off and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offering and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for the, all the Lord's appointed holy occasions as a freewill offering brought to the Lord. The on the first day of the seventh month, they began uh, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They gave money to the stone cutters and artisans and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by sea, according to the authorization given to them by King Cyrus of Persia. In the second month of the second year, they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, son of Sheathel, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the rest of the brothers, including the priests, the Levites and all who had returned to Jerusalem from, uh, from the captivity began to build. They appointed the Levites who were 20 years old or more to supervise the work on God's house. Je Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, and Hanadad with his sons and brothers, the Levites, joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. And the the scripture goes on to say that, starting in verse 10, that the temple foundation is put on. And then chapter 5 talks about, chapter 4 talks about some opposition and how the king works it out, that they can continue the work. And then chapter 5 talks about how they rebuild. So Nehemiah 9, we'll look at that in a second. I gave you that big story about Israel's history and the backdrop to where we are in Ezra chapter 3 to tell you something that I think you and I need to remember. We honor what God has done in the past. We should, right? What he's done in our life, what he's done in the life of our church, what he's done in the life of our family. But something that we have to be careful about in our life is that we don't rest on the laurels from the past in order to see what God's going to do in the future. We just don't go, hey, well, like, like if everything we talk about what God did is something that he did, you know, 20 years ago, then it's like we're saying God hasn't done anything in the past two decades, right? And sometimes we rest on, the, on whatever the glory days are for us and we forget to see what God is doing. And the, pro the problem is that we have to look at the past to make sure we don't make the same mistakes. We look at the past, like we talked about, in order to build up our faith for the future. But we have to be experiencing what God is doing right now in our midst. That should be our central theme for something that we call worship. Worship thinks about the past. Worship does hope for the future. But the majority of what our worship should be about is what God is doing currently in our life. Think about this for a second. If your worship only comes from remembering what God did yesterday, 
and hoping God gets you out of whatever jam you're in today, but you don't realize who God is right now, your worship is not going to be as effective as it could be. And what, what is worship? Well, worship really simply is ascribing worth to something. And what biblical, biblically centered worship is us ascribing worth to the God that we're worshiping based on what the Bible says he is and what he's done for us. So here's the difference about that, though. Sometimes worship takes the form of us worshiping some generic God or some God that we heard on the radio or the God that we think we know about and we worship God in this very tangible way that makes us feel better for the day but we don't spend the time to find out what the Bible says about the God that we are attributing worth to. We'll take someone else's um, word for it, that God is something, God is powerful, and we'll say, yeah, uh, my sister said God's powerful, so I'm going to worship this powerful God. What about if we were to know this powerful God ourselves and then worship him from our own personal experience? Worship is biblically centered when we know what the Bible says about the God we attribute worth to. And because we know what the Bible says about that God that we attribute worth to, our worship should take a deeper and more meaningful form. And that, that is our goal here at Solid Rock for all of us is to have true worshipers. Not someone who knows the latest and the greatest songs, not someone who just keeps up on the latest trends. Not someone who just, like, worship has to be more than music. Okay? Music is an essential part of worship, as we're going to see. But worshiping, worship music is not the end all of worship. Because the problem is sometimes we get so much into the musical aspect of worship, we forget about biblically centered worship, and all of a sudden, the preacher may be off like by a, by a lot biblically, but man, that song jams, and all of a sudden, we're going to concerts instead of going to church. That's not what God prescribes for his people. Some of the reasons why we have such a generation of church hoppers is because they're just finding the next best thing instead of knowing what it means to worship God. And if you don't know what the word says about God, you don't know what worship is. I don't care how many instruments you can play. I don't care how good your voice is. I don't care how many lyrics you can memorize. If you are not in the word, you don't know how to worship. And it's hard for us to see that sometimes, but it's true. Some of us have such a superficial sense of what worship is, we think it's just about what Dustin does with his team every week. Not realizing what happens on this stage before and after I get up to speak should be a representation of what God has been doing throughout the week in the lives of the people singing and also in the lives of the congregation. That's what worship is. That we know what the word of God says about God, what it says about us, that there's repentance, that there's this preparation, that all these things that lead to us attributing worth to God. I mean, imagine, you're, you know, those of us who are married here, imagine if all of a sudden the way we attribute worth to our spouse is just we just fly by the seat of our pants and hope the best happens. Right? 
Imagine if we treated our relationships like that, where we just go, ah, you know what? Hey, it's just about, it's just about the music. It's just about the date night. It's just about the physical love. That's all our relationships are about. Imagine what, what our marriages would be like if that's how we attribute worth. Imagine if we don't find out more about the person that we're attributing worth to. So when we talk about biblically-centered worship, we talk about what it means to truly understand who God is and then through that attribution of worth, we do our best to show him how much we think he is, right? So the first part about this, and this is why we got into Ezra chapter three, there's only two parts to this. The first part is this, preparation for worship. Now, Ezra chapter three makes it very clear that there was some work to be done, right? Now, here's the first part about preparation. If you look at chapter three, one of the first things that they instituted right away was burnt offering sacrifices and also what? The celebration of certain feasts, right? The burnt offerings and the celebration, especially the feast of shelter, the festival of shelters, talks specifically about what it takes to have a right relationship with God. And so what, do, what were sacrifices for? Do you guys remember what sacrifices were for? Sacrifices, what, what would happen, right? You would take the best of your flock, the, uh, the, the, not, 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 not the runt. You took the best one, like the, the, the sheep or the goat that would have brought you the most money at the market. That's the one that you take. And you take and you bring it to, the, they would bring it to the temple. You would give it to the priest and the priest would kill it and they would burn it as an offering to God. And this offering was for what? For repentance. This was to teach the nation of Israel that one day Jesus Christ would die and pay the price for their sins. And so these lambs were pictures of what Jesus would do, right? And so every time, you, it was never going to take away your sin, the, the blood of the animal, but it was your faith in that this is what God prescribed, that if you did this, then you would be in a right relationship with God. Now imagine for 70 years, this wasn't happening corporately. It wasn't happening individually. That you had to do your best to hope like you had, you had a right relationship with God. There was, that there was no sacrifices to, to physically show for you to realize the sacrifice your sin costs. There was none of that. All of a sudden now, what they do first, even before the temple is built, they start doing sacrifices again. Why? Because the first part about preparation for worship is repentance. We are not in any position to attribute worth to God until we first realize who we are. Because some of us get up in the morning after living our life completely for ourselves and for the world, and then we get up in the morning and we want God to bless our day and not even care about what we just did the last 24 hours. And when Saturday night was party night, Sunday night we go to church and we hope everything's going to be okay with God. Oh man, that song was great. I feel such in the mood now. Worship isn't about being in the mood. Because a lot of times worship should get you out of the mood. Worship should cut you up because when you realize who God is, you start realizing who you are. And a lot of worship should be us changing our mind about who we are and getting right with God. We truly cannot attribute worth to God until we realize how worthless we are without him. And so the first thing, even before the temple's done, they get this burnt sacrifices going and they get the, this festival of shelters 
was they would put up, they would build these tents on top of their house or around their house, and they would live in these tents for a while to signify them being, not only being in the wilderness, but remembering the tabernacle years before they had this temple. And so this festival specifically reminded them of the significance of what tabernacle and temple life was all about. It was about them and their relationship with God. If you know anything about how the temple was built, only certain people could go to a certain point, and then only certain people go to a certain point, and then even less people go to the next point. By the time you got to where God was in the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil, only the high priest could go in once a year. So to kind of show you, like, God was with us, but God is holy. God can't look at our sin. God can't see us. There was this idea that there were lines of demarcation between us and how, how we were and how who God was. And so for them, as, they, as they, they begin to do these offerings, some of it, you got to think about the young kids who didn't understand any of this, like why are they doing this? There was a lot of education going around this preparation, but the big part of the education was this. The heart of education for Israel at this point was the education of the heart. The young people needed to know, this is how we stay right with God. This is what we do. So they institute these, these, this preparation, these sacrifices. And then we find out after they have these things going, then you see, see people starting to surrender to do what? In order to start building the temple. And the temple gets built. Right? So now let's go to Nehemiah chapter 9. So the first part of worship is what? Preparation. And the first part of preparation is what? Repentance. Right? Think about that for us. Repentance has to be a necessary and, some, and, and a lot of times a preliminary step to real worship. We repent. Now let's look at chapter 9. Let's talk about repentance for a little bit. So does anybody know the difference between repentance and confession? Not, not the Roman Catholic term confession, but biblical Confession. What's the difference between repentance and confession? Any idea? Say it again, Bonnie. What? Yep. Thank you. Right? That's exactly what it is. Give Bonnie a hand. That was nice, Bonnie. She bakes and she's also a theologian. All right. <laughs> but what, no, one of the things about about repentance is you change your mind about who you are in God is and then God and then so God now has changed you hopefully and the spirit is convicting you and you start making those changes confession confession is what telling people telling God first so it's one thing to have a repentant heart it's another thing to to spell out that repentance before God and say we I have done this I have done this so it for us confession is good for us for us to tangibly realize the repentance, okay? So in, in, in Nehemiah chapter nine, they actually had a national confession for their sin. Now think about it. They haven't had a temple in a while. They haven't had, they weren't a nation for a while. And so God leads now, now in Nehemiah, the governmental structure to do what? To lead the entire nation in, in confession. So verse nine, chapter one says, on the 24th day of this month, the Israelites were assembled and look what they were doing. Okay, remember, this is where the preparation has taken place. They were already what? Fasting, wearing sackcloth, and they put dust on their heads. Those Israelite uh, descent separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood in their places and they read from the book of the law of their Lord, their God, for the fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord, their God. Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabani. Do you remember some of those names from Ezra, right? 
Bunai, Sherebiah, Bana, and Chenei stood in, in the raised platform built for the Levites and cried out loudly to their Lord, their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaniah said, Stand up. Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting for everlasting. And then it goes on into this prayer. And if you read the prayer, it literally takes them through their history. All of chapter 9 takes them through their history. And in verse 37 it says, And its, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you set before us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. So here's what repentance did. Here's what confession does. Confession puts a verbal acknowledgement about the repentance that should be going on in your heart. Nehemiah leads the entire nation to do this. And I'm here to tell you, preparation for worship is not just repentance. Preparation for worship also should include confession. Biblically centered worship should come from people who are repentant and people who are honest about who they are and are able to confess to God and to confess their order, to others their faults. Worship is transparent. Worship is humbling. Worship isn't a performance. Worship is a way of life. And when you look at this, this, of Nehemiah, exactly what happened as, as, as you read through this confession... You find out a few things, and, and, and to close up, I just want to show you a couple of things. Number one, they separated themselves, it says, from all foreigners. Now, like I told you, the temple, there was a plate, for, there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles where anybody can go. After that, you had to be, uh, you had to be part of ethnically of the family of God as you got closer to God. These are his chosen people. And so they honored that by saying, and, and you got to remember, these are people who, there were people who have been watching. There are people who have been in the multitude. There have been all these people. And now they're saying that we were the ones that sinned against you, God. The, the, the other nations that we've been hanging out with, they may have caused some of it, but we're the ones that sinned against you. So, so some, we read this, some of us read this as, oh, they're being very, very selective. They're being prejudiced. No, they're literally saying, it's not on them. We're the ones that did this. We're going forward. This is, this is beyond the big crowd. We were the ones that sinned against you, the nation of Israel, and so we will step forward. Because the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, were always supposed to be the ones that led the way. And so they're leading the way saying, hey, we are the first ones that need to confess. And they come forward and what do they do? They can, this is what repentance. So if you want to know whether you're repentant or not, here's some things that you'll do. You'll confess the things that you think, say, or do that displease God, your sins, and you confess the iniquities of the, of the fathers. They say this, hey, we're even going to confess with the stuff that, that, that they did because I'm sure some of it has affected the decisions that I've made with my life. And so, Lord, I am asking you for forgiveness for what I've done. And anything that, that, that my fathers and my grandfathers and my great-grandfathers have done that's affected how the way I'm living my life, Lord, I want to get that out before you too. Please, as a nation, we need to repent. And so we're going to go back to where the problem started, and we're just going to own it, and we're going to take it on us. And sometimes corporately as a church, we need to do things like that. The rock didn't handle such, such and such in the past. The elders, we realized that was the wrong move. We repent and we try to make amends for what happened. Even though we may not even been in the room, we'll do that because that's what leaders do. We make sure that, that the organization is right, right before God. And so they make sure the nation is right. So they not only confess their sins, but the sins of their fathers. And, and now look at this. Here's what preparation now leads to. Preparation led them to not only confess, 
But then what was the next thing that they did before worshiping? They got into the word of God. And they got into the word of God as a nation. They, while they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law. Biblically centered worship better include the Bible. Right? Not just singing about it, not just tippy-toeing around it, not just picking the phrase that we like to get a mantra or a chant. Worship must include the word of God. I, I make this my pledge to you. As, as your pastor, we will not introduce any song until we've tested the theological uh, validity of it. And we don't all agree on everything theologically, but those cardinal doctrines about how we get saved and who Jesus is and the virgin birth and the blood of Jesus cleansed and soul liberty of the believer, all those things, the word of God being our final authority, our songs will have that. Anything that just has some, 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 some lyric, but it only centers around the person and not about God, we're not going to sing those. And not, you may not agree with every song, you may not agree with every church that wrote the song, but if there's not, if there are things that, that lead us to God, those are the things that are going to be in worship. The next thing they do after that, they all stand, they, they open up the word, they worship, and now this is why I want to draw your attention on the last part. They cried, they all stood, and they crowd, cried out loudly to the Lord their God, and then they began to proclaim what the word of God says. Biblically-centered worship prepares us by leading us into repentance that then leads us into confession. That confession then leads us into, hopefully, cracking open the word. And if not, realize you're not, gonna, you're not going to be healed spiritually if you're not opening your Bible. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so once you start opening the word of God and God starts speaking to you in the word, here's what I want you to do. This is what we're going to do right now. Worship requires, I believe, two movements sometimes. Sometimes it, it, it involves standing and sometimes it involves bowing down. And I believe congregationally you'll see people stand as a group. But I tell you to stand for the, for the word of God, for respect for it. But standing does something. Standing at attention, standing up now changes your position for you to focus on what you're doing now. And so I know a lot of us like, oh man, I can't stand, I'm getting old. I get that. If this physical limitation is fine, but we stand not only to show respect, but we stand for us to focus on who God is.